there's this moment in sales, there's this moment when you're pitching for venture capital where you do have to sit and think about every single thing they might consider, whatever's on their mind. So often we think they need to come and meet us where we're at, but in real storytelling, you go into their world. That yep. You don't ask them to leave their world and come into yours. That's the voice of Nancy Duarte, the communication and storytelling expert. She's helped people like Al Gore communicate an inconvenient truth, and she's helped the biggest names in tech get their stories heard. Nancy has cracked the code on how to incorporate story patterns into business communications, and today she's going to show you how you can do it. This is Mike Maples Jr. of Floodgate, and it's go time with Nancy Duarte. Welcome to Starting Greatness, a podcast dedicated to ambitious founders who want to go from nothing to awesome super fast. When you're a startup founder, you have to channel your inner James Bond, your MacGyver, your Wonder Woman. I'm going to help you win by curating the lessons of the super performers, but before they were successful. So without further ado, ignition sequence start. Let's get started. In order to change the world, you need more than a great product. You need to start a movement. And movements only happen when people are moved to adopt your idea. Nancy Duarte's ideas about storytelling have contributed more than any other to my perspective on this. I've enjoyed getting to know her in person as well, and I'm excited that as startup founders, you will now get to see the awesome power of storytelling as a vehicle for you to move the world. Let's catch up with her. Nancy Duarte, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Mike. One of the things that we've always observed about entrepreneurship is you're trying to convince people to do things that aren't logical. You're trying to convince early customers to buy from a company that may be out of business soon. You're trying to convince employees that could get better jobs and more status at Facebook and Google to join your fledgling organization. And so I thought that founders would really benefit from a discussion on storytelling. And you're about the best I know at it. So uh, would love to just get a little bit of, just for the founders, just a little bit of your background and just your relationship to this topic and, and you know, how do you help people learn how to tell better stories? Yeah. So I've been, I've had a services firm here in the Silicon Valley for about 31 years. So we've worked with a lot of big companies working on their IPOs. And then we've had relationships with really large clients for for the full 31 years, Apple being our longest term client for all 31. And so we work with um, executives and staff and we help them put words in their math, mouth and visualize them and help them deliver their greatest talk of all time. And so I guess the, the one that um, probably a lot of people have seen is the one with Al Gore and Inconvenient yeah. Truth. Like, yep. So how did you meet Al Gore and yeah. like, what was up with that? Yeah. So what happened was uh, he went on to the board at Apple and when you're on the board, you can't receive goods or services from a company. So they flipped him over to us because we've worked with them. They've been our largest client for 31 years. And so they flipped him over to us. Uh, we met with him, started to help him with the content, helped him with the delivery, helped him with uh, um, slides. And then I never dreamed that a movie about a slideshow would win an Academy Award. So we worked with him for five years before it became a movie and then a couple years after. And so if we just take an inconvenient truth mm -hmm. through the lens of storytelling, yeah. like what are the, what are 
are some of the storytelling techniques, and then how did you apply it to an inconvenient truth? Yeah, so it's interesting. A lot of people don't understand when I say story what that means. It doesn't yeah. mean fiction or spin or or fantasy. The what message. it means, yeah. yeah. What it really means is that we take fundamental components from story that really make them resonate. So we can hook up an FRI, fMRI machine to a brain now and see what's happening when a story is being told, and it is the most profound structure to communicate through. And so story uh, structure, we use uh, the hero and the mentor, and we lift archetypical and structural things from story and apply it to communication. So what's interesting about An Inconvenient Truth is that was a big data story. Like it yeah. was there in front of data. And back then, slides were so ugly to, in the commonplace. Like people were like, oh, my God, it's simple data. Um, and then it was a mixed um, in between. Um, in between the actual presentation, there were personal stories being told. So we had responsibility for the actual slideshow and the content that he delivered. The little bits of personal story about his sister and all of those things, though, that was Lori David um, that helped produce that part. But him standing in front or anybody standing in front when you're presenting, um, whether it's data or any sort of content, you have to use um, structure that people can consume. And that's really a lot about what story does for you is it helps you package things into a structure where it's more consumable. So he used storytelling techniques like uh, shock and surprise, uh, like when he got up on the scissor lift and the uh, the data was much higher. So that was a form of shock and surprise, which is a component of story that you lift so that it makes people feel. So here's a whole presentation about data and you want them to feel something while they're watching it. So a storytelling component around data is using shock and surprise, which is part of what he did. Yeah. Okay. And I think one of the things I've learned from you about storytelling is that on some level, you're trying to get somebody to transform, right? So you're saying, okay, I am where I am, and there's this future better world yeah. that's full of bliss, hopefully, mm-hmm. and I need to talk you into making this hero's journey on this story. So like, what was the journey that Al Gore wanted people to make when he did The Inconvenient Truth? Oh, well, what's interesting about an inconvenient as far as story structures, inconvenient truth is it's an inconclusive story structure. The new bliss was never clearly defined at the end because he wanted the people to define how the movement would end, which is interesting. So the call to action the was call a to choice. Action, exactly. Exactly. The call to action was the choice of the reaction of the of the people who viewed the movie, which is an interesting another kind of a story structure yep. um, that can be employ that you can employ. So the the um, jumping into this other world is a story technique based out of Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, which is kind of what you're implying. So it's cool that you know so much about story, and that is when uh, the protagonist or the hero of the story. Um, they always leave their ordinary world, jump into a special world, and then go back to their ordinary world. So like Luke Skywalker starts on a sandy planet and decides to jump into the actual action. And so um, the same thing happens with the entrepreneurs, right? You're trying to get people to leave the place that they're at and jump into believing that if they join you or your or the employees or customers, that it'll be this amazing experience and they'll be changed in the process. So story is all about transformation. And the, and the transformation in An Inconvenient Truth was implied by us being in us, the viewers being the ones charged with making a difference or not making a choice. Yeah. And it's interesting because one of the reasons I think that stories are so important in entrepreneurship is on some level, all great startups have founders that are living in the future. Yeah. And they're in, in a, usually when they're business to business startups, they're trying to co-create that future with their innovative customers. And so the innovative customers need to become a hero in their own hero's journey of a path to a better world that they're going to be the protagonist in. 
And so if you can't if, – if all you do is present facts and just talk about buzzwords and jargon and gobbledygook, you kind of miss that opportunity yeah. to tell that story or to make somebody part of that story. B2B has more uh, challenges, right, because a lot of the product's kind of invisible. It's not like you have a beautiful hero shot of a of – a, gadget, right? You have to actually communicate conceptually, um, almost more so than anything. And uh, the protagonist in any, whether they're B2B, B2C, anything, the, your your customer or your audience is always the hero of the story. And so often as an entrepreneur, we're so busy, we're so, we're so focused on pushing everything forward, we forget that we're not the central figure in the yep. story, yep. but that our customers, our audiences, those are the central figures. And if, if we don't get them to buy off, we lose. Like they hold all the power and we forget that all of our customers and stakeholders, other people hold all the power and that we, it's our job to try to influence them to jump into yep our special world. And um, yeah, so that's yeah, how that I mean, rolls. It, it's, it's so interesting because I do see that happen a lot where somebody wants to present something and they come into the presentation thinking, I need to get the customer to buy something or do something. And I need to get these points in the meeting and I need to anticipate their objections and handle their objections so that I'll get the order. And so often they, they forget to empathize and put themselves in the shoes of that person and and, and ask the question, right? Like what, what journey do they – what ride do they want to go on with me? Exactly. And there, yeah. there's a lesser known part of Joseph Campbell's hero's journey where he puts on the skin of, of the enemy. Now, in this case, the customer is not the enemy, but it's a moment where you look through the eyes of someone else like you see an avatar. That's probably the best example, right? Because he became blue and understood more clearly you know, what the Navi people were going through. And so there's this moment in sales. There's this moment when you're pitching for venture capital where you do have to sit and think about every single thing they might consider, whatever is on their mind, whatever. Um, I even do uh, Google alerts for a month before I might meet with someone. So I really understand what's going on in the news, what's going on in their life. You could research a lot of things about people, um, but it's in service of looking at things through their eyes, not using it like a, a you know, shuckster sales guy or anything like that. It's really, really, really to take a moment and think about what might move them, what yep. might um, what might touch them and, and what's really on their mind so you can meet them there. You could leave where you're at and meet them there. So often we think they need to come and meet us where we're at. But in real storytelling, you go into their world. They, yep. You don't ask them to leave their world and come into yours. Yeah. And in fact, I love one of the metaphors I've heard you talk about is when you pitch somebody and tell a story, you should try to think more like Yoda yeah. rather than the star, yeah. right? Because like, exactly. like when you think about Star Wars, you're sort of – you're trying to persuade Luke Skywalker to become a Jedi and tear down the Empire. And Yoda is a mentor who's going to take him into that future and he has magical tools like a lightsaber, right, that helps helps him achieve the goal. And in many ways, storytelling in startups feels a lot like that, right? The the startup opportunity is, you know, the startup founder, I suppose, like Yoda, and the, the tools that they offer, whether it's the lightsaber or the force, there's like the mechanism the customer has to go to that better world. Yeah, exactly. And I think we forget that. So really, the uh, entrepreneur is Yoda, and the customers are Luke Skywalker. And so what your product or service should do is it should be like, you're saying, just like a lightsaber or the force. What's interesting about the fact that you brought both of those up is a is the lightsaber was to help Luke get through his physical journey. And the force was to get him through his heart and his own journey, his own identity. And products and services can do both of those things. And the role of the entrepreneur is to help your customers get unstuck. So you're Yoda. And Yoda 
well, he was 800 years old, right? He'd been a, a, he'd been on the hero's journey a whole bunch of times, and we're supposed to be the knowledgeable one that helps them get unstuck. It's not really about us. It's about them getting unstuck on their journey and meeting them right when they needed you. You're supposed to be there for them with a product or a service. Yeah, and by training Luke Skywalker, they co-create the future. Exactly, right? exactly. Um, and I loved your comment about entrepreneurs being obsessed about the future because we are, right? They, we are a we're obsessed about the future or we wouldn't be successful. And one of the reasons we obsess is in 18 months, every one of our customers is going to be in a different place. And if right. we're not meeting them there in the future, we're going to be at the wrong place and that'll that'll hurt your business. And so a lot of that, that's a journey too that we're on. And you can't conflate the, the difference between a customer's journey and the journey we're on as entrepreneurs. Yeah. And so much of uh, entrepreneurship we found is you, you have to find people, first of all, who want to live in the future, knowing your audience, right? Because some people just don't. And if you don't get those initial people who want to live in the future enfranchised, yeah, yeah, yeah it just won't happen. it'll be too scary. Yeah. And you have to be kind of a risk taker. You have to be, you know, to jump into the boat with someone where you're risking, you know, all your Facebook stock or whatever to do it. So, yeah. So one of the, one of the things I've also heard you talk about that I've really liked was how you compared some of the great speeches like the Gettysburg Address, Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream, even the Steve Jobs iPhone announcement. And you noticed that there was a, a pattern uh, that was common between those. I'm just curious if you could help folks understand what that was. Yeah, I'm like, I am a pattern finder for sure. And I actually have a book. I still have it. Um, it's called The 100 Greatest Speeches of All Time in the world or whatever. I can't remember the exact. And I knew that speeches, like when you sit through a really good speech, it has like a cadence and a rhythm and something that keeps you drawn in and you're just riveted. And I knew there had to be fundamental principles from story or they wouldn't be that interesting. Um, and I noticed that with, with story, the thing that makes us so attached to it is that rise and fall, the dramatic arc, right? The rise and fall, and then you get a cathartic release after a story is being told. So after going through about a three-year journey of studying stories, story patterns, script writing, screenwriting, lit- you know, literature, the whole bit, um, I sat down with this book, Hunter's Beaches of All Times. And I thought if, if I can find the pattern there that's true, that would help all communicators in the future. And and that's what I did. I found the pattern. And the rise and fall, the cathartic release comes between the contrast that you're painting between what currently is and what can be. And that's a structural device. Just like, And it has a three-act structure to it. So it's the rise and fall. Look, here's our current status quo. But just imagine. And you and you paint a picture of what could be. And then, it, then as you contrast it, because the brain – Processes contrast almost more strongly than anything. So you're using a story form to produce contrast so their brains can see the gap between what currently is and what could be in the future. Okay. So if we just take them one at a time. So like Steve Jobs' speech, he starts out with a big idea, right? The phone needs to be reinvented. But then one of the things that I think is subtle is throughout the speech, he'll say, look at these other smartphones, how they suck. Wouldn't it be good if it was this way? Yeah. Yeah. Look at how the approach to surfing the web sucks. Wouldn't it be awesome if it was this way? Look at how you can't even watch video or play music well on a phone. But now you can. Now you can do it this way. And it's, he's so – the sleight of hand is masterful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, that, and I think the comparison and how he chose to frame things up was also why he got so much applause and so yep. much ooing and aahing. So when people physically react to a speech, they physically react to story. It's the same thing. You jump back or you clap or next thing you know you're smiling and these physical reactions tell – the audience is expressing 
involuntarily how they feel. And Steve Jobs, he had physical reactions from his audience with laughing or clapping almost every 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. That's them being surprised or being delighted or they're marveling. And that's really hard to do. That's why I think we'll compare business communications to him for a long time. Um, I'm hoping somebody will rise to the challenge and fill the gap and be that scale of communicator would be really lovely to have in business again. And if I'm understanding the the principle well, um, let's take the Gettysburg Address. Abe Lincoln starts out by saying four score and seven years ago, we started this awesome country with these great ideals. Now we're having a civil war. Yeah. But we're meeting here because there's a bunch of brave, awesome people who are trying to bring us this better future. And so it's it's interesting because if you the the Gettysburg Address has the same cadence, right? Absolutely. It does. goes from what you don't want about what's happening today to what what could be back to what you don't want, back to what could be. Exactly. I love that you're so familiar with that piece. What's interesting about that is he he moved, he established, it was a eulogy. A lot of people don't even realize that. He was actually eulogizing and honoring all the people who had lost their lives. Eulogies back then used to be in the, what's called the Aristotelian structure. They used to be two hours long. So what's so fascinating, what he did in about 250 words, the, the cameras hadn't, they weren't even set up yet because they were going to take a picture. We don't have a picture of it because he did it so tight and so well and so beautifully. So he did what is, what could be, call to action and new bliss. He only did a piece of it, but he did it tight and short um, and it's stunning. Yeah, it is stunning. And so then when we take these, you know, you've mentioned this already, but I think it's worth uh, double clicking on. There's the beginning, there's the middle, there's the end. So like, how do you want to create contrast in the beginning uh, in terms of the big idea? How do you how do you advise people to do that? Yeah. Um, what's interesting is it depends kind of on how, how long your talk is. So to kind of close the loop, say, on um, the Gettysburg Address, with, with if you just start off with what is, what could be call to action, new bliss, that's also like an elevator talk, right? That's like your 30-second, here's who we are, here's what we do. And you would structure it that way. Um, the, the what is, what you're trying to do there is you're trying to establish shared norms. This is what we all believe is true, or um, this is how we all work work today, you're, you're painting a picture of what everyone has a common same perspective of. And then you, you, you kind of take their world out of balance the first time you um, introduce the way a new future could be. But here's how, but just imagine if we operated this way, you know, what the benefit would be. So you, you, you move back and forth as a broader structural device. It's not it, I don't want to come across like this as a formula. Yeah. Um, I specifically called it a form because um, that's what sonatas are called, musical, classical sonatas. It's a form. It's a three-act structure, a sonata is, yeah, a which is awesome. Yeah. Exactly. There's so much creativity within this form um, yeah. that it's not like – it's not so formulaic. So if you look at a, a Beethoven or a Mozart um, sonata, they're so different. And that's what you have a lot of freedom within this structure. But it's painting a picture between the current realities and where we're headed. It, 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 it's shocking how much contrast you can put there. And then it does have that emotional rise and fall and rise and fall um, structurally, which is important. So how do you apply that? To, so the big idea, I suppose, is just you're painting a contrast between what is and what could be. And then in in the middle of the speech or the middle of the presentation, how 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 does the contrast change from the beginning with the big yeah, idea? Yeah, so the so the big idea we actually um, state that the big idea is like what your talk's going to be about, and you use that as a filtering device. So in like our world, a big idea is what is your unique point of view everyone came to hear, and what's at stake if they do or do not do what you're asking them to do. So you have to think about that. That becomes your filter for every single thing you put into your talk. So that frames up your big. idea. 
idea. So what's interesting is the very first time you go from what is to what could be, that's what in storytelling is called an inciting incident. That's the moment where everyone's making a decision to either jump in or not jump in. So the things that happen in that first turn are your first impression. You've either they're either with you or they're not. By then, they're either on board or they've just dismissed you altogether. So you have the first impression. The middle as a structural device, the cadence can be tight or loose. It, it doesn't really matter. But what you're doing is that's where the meat comes in. So in storytelling, the middle is called the messy middle. So that's okay. like think about Luke Skywalker, right? That was like horrible. Like yeah. he, he was just really going through it. Yoda, I'm, yeah, um, Frodo, right? Just yeah. really being. And so that's going to be the hard part. That's when you're really getting in people's heads and you're doing turns and twists so that they're coming along with you because they're the ones that are struggling. You might not be struggling with it. You've already bought off on it, but they're having an internal turmoil turmoil possibly at the scale of what Frodo had to go through, right? In their minds, this is a long slog. There's fire. There's like They're just like really processing and they're wanting to resist you. Like they're instantly going to want to throw up roadblocks because you're asking them to transform in some way. And then the end, you have a call to action, which every great presentation should have, but a lot of them end there. But you should really end with uh, the new bliss. And what that is, is it's you restating, just imagine how great the future is going to be. Steve Jobs's iPhone speech said, uh, um, uh, we always skate to where the puck is going to be, not where it's been. We um, have always tr- done that at Apple and we always will. So he's promising revolutionary products in the future. So you state, you restate how glorious the future is going to be. And that's where you end. Because whatever's Martin the last Luther thing. King, it's Martin I have Luther a dream. King, yeah. He, 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 um, at the end, most, that's when he most heavily used the uh, hymns and the scriptures. So he was reusing things that were culturally relevant to them and reminded them of deeply seated beliefs. Um, that they had. Yeah. So, and and then another thing that I've heard you say related to this is the process of making the slides. So one of the one of one of the difficulties I encounter so, sometimes, even with the companies I'm working with, not just the ones who pitch us, is they'll say, "Okay, I'm working on my presentation," and they show up with 20 slides, yeah. and they want me. They want to present the slides to me, then they want me to react to the slides. And I've I've always liked your method better, which which I've internalized as write the titles of the slides first, and the the, the titles by themselves should flow as an argument, right? And they, and they tell the story, but like, yeah, tell what's up with that? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's so astounding to me that if someone actually got to have an audience with you, they would put a piece of technology and a bunch of slides between themselves and you and tried to pitch you without having, you know, eye contact and a really great narrative. And I think that's the most important thing is know who you're talking to and use the right medium to convey that message. Mm -hmm. So there's a couple ways we communicate with presentation software. One is up on a stage where there's a verbal and a visual stream at the same time. Your slides at that point become, you know, a a bit of a way to prompt you on what to say next. But most importantly, it's like a prop. It's a prop. Yeah, it's your visual. It's actually like your stage. It's your visual backdrop. And it should amplify what you're saying, frame what you're saying, add context to what you're saying, or or be like a shocking statistic and everyone gasps or an emotional visual and everyone's crying or, you know, that's what it's for. It's to help you become a stronger storyteller. It's not supposed to communicate with dense words. They're not supposed to read while you talk. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other extreme of that is that the main way a lot of presentation software is done is to create what we call a slide doc. And you 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 create this thing that they could send to you and say, hey, I'm looking for funding and you could read it and it's like a document. It can 
beautiful like a magazine even. You read it and you decide, you know what, I want a meeting with that person. They've impressed me. So that it, your slide docs become like an emissary and can open doors, but you would never sit in front of you and 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 have you be reading a slide on a laptop and be trying to have a conversation with me. Um, the brain science shows that people cannot process a verbal stream and a visual stream at the same time. So if you have yeah. a complex visual stream, they'll either be listening to you or reading, but they won't be doing both. Yeah. And what I find so often is when you're doing a presentation before you do any slides, it's like, what what story do we want to tell here? Right. So, we, so it's kind of like, okay, because like what I've learned about VCs, for example, in my field we don't invest in companies because they want money. We invest in companies because we believe someday they will be one of the top 20 most amazing power law distributed outcomes of the year. And so the, the entrepreneur needs to come in and say to me, um, I'm about to help you be part of this movement that's going to result in us making this amazing thunder lizard killer outcome company. And, uh, this is why you know my idea has uh, the the disruptive power and the potential energy to be one of those special companies, mm-hmm. uh, and and it's like knowing that narrative, knowing like what 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 success would look like for a company in this field based on the contrarian insight that you have. Whereas with a customer, it might be I'm looking for a small set of people who are in on the secret with us and believe what we believe about what the future needs to look like, let's go create that future together. Right. And, you know, I've anticipated some roadblocks along the way. Let's talk about those. Right. But, like, for every roadblock, here's our answer to that and why we're going to unblock that roadblock. Exactly. And the, and the nature, that's so interesting, you could pick that up. The nature of the narrative you would use for each is very different. So the minute an entrepreneur, I, I think um, uh, VCs, they bet on the idea, but sometimes they bet on the entrepreneur. And if for they sure. didn't have the right idea that time, right, you bet on them again. But um, what happens with a VC is the minute you hear an idea, you see most of it. I mean, you figure most of it out. And so what it the reason people are like, well, why does a VC interrupt me? I had this whole presentation planned out. It's like, because you guys see most of it. And then you have pockets of questions and then you see all of it. And it's that simple, right? Because you guys get it so quickly. And that's very different and conversational, whereas a customer presentation is very different and you're guiding them on a journey. How you do the demo can be like a story. How you how you convince them that they should go on this rocket ship with you is a very different story. So they're nuanced, but they can use the same underlying framework of the presentation form we were talking about. And what you're really poking at, which is fascinating, is that you have to nuance everything Every talk to the audience, that's empathy at its finest. And empathy is really what all my body work is about. And storytelling is like, I was telling you, it's like the gateway drug to empathy. And so if you really can understand who you're talking about, and then you have to nuance every talk, you would never take your VC talk and tell it to a customer. Hopefully not, or vice versa. (laughs) Or vice versa. Yeah, and and what's interesting is, let's say that you're talking to the press, right? Yeah, very different. The the person that you're talking to in the press is also the hero in their journey. Exactly. and, And maybe they want their article to win some award, or maybe they want their article to be on the front page of the publication, or maybe they want their article to reinforce an idea that they're already reinforcing. And you either help accelerate them on that journey or you don't, yep. right? And if the, the extent to which you help them get their job done better, you're successful, right, in many ways, rather than I have to jam this quote into the story kind of right. stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Help them fuel their career. It's about that too. So, okay. So then, we, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about come up with the titles of the slides before and it and the the title should almost read as an argument exactly by as themselves. a case exactly and so like you don't want to have a slide that says customers 
or a slide that says product or like what like what should what are examples of what slides? That's could interesting. Sound like? That's yeah. an interesting question. So you, I mean, you technically could have a yeah. slide that just has the word customer or just has a big number or just has the word advantage on it if if that's what you need to see to trigger yourself. So what's interesting is uh, some people think, oh, if you're doing a 30 minute talk, you should have 30 slides. I do a 30 minute talk. I have almost 150. You would never know it, right? Because I'll use maybe one word like I wouldn't probably ever use the word customer. I tend to use action words or verbs because if you're really trying to move a customer forward or move something forward, I wouldn't use descriptors like advantage or customer because those are, well, one's an adjective and one's a noun. But I would tend to use um, more verbs that are more action driven if you're trying to get them to take action. you got to actually have a balance of emotional and analytical appeal. And you got to use the words that would be the right level of emotional appeal based on who your audience is. Um, so the, the actual words on the slides, the titles need to read and flow. So you, um, I always put everything in slideshow mode. So just like you said, I put all the words on as title slides. I use the title slides. I back up. I put it in slide sorter mode. I always look at the whole mm-hmm. and not the part. So I read all the words. I rearrange it to make sure it flows up and down and has that dramatic arc and rise and fall. I put enough words for me to understand the flow. And then my designers sometimes remove the words altogether and put a concept or a visual. And, you know, so it doesn't even have to have words. But I have to look at the whole thing. And that's what you have to do. You, um, the the tragedy of uh, presentation software is it forces you to think linearly, like open it up, make the first slide, make the second slide, make the third slide. And you don't back up and you're looking at the parts and not the whole. And so look at the, look at the whole and then decide if the structure's right and then go and decide what the right words are for every single side. Yeah. Another thing that you talk about a lot, Nancy, is this notion of a star moment. And so what's that all about? Yeah. So that's an acronym for something they'll always remember. So every talk that you give, regardless of who the audience needs to have a star moment, it could be something as brilliant as a a shocking statistic, or it can be a story that you've told. Um, On the TED stage, there's been several, like when um, Bill Gates was talking about malaria and he released a ton of mosquitoes mosquitoes, and they were biting, like the first 30 rows are getting bit by mosquitoes while he's talking about malaria. So I would call that like a dramatization almost, right? So there's the scale of them can be anything, but it's whatever you want. Like if there was one moment in your presentation, you wanted everyone to leave and talk about, make sure you turn that into a star moment moment so they remember it, they can recall it later, and then they can relay it to other people and spread it. To what extent do you think some people are just born storytellers, kind of like artists? And to what degree do you think people can be coached or trained? Because, I mean, your business is is helping people get to a certain mm-hmm. level of performance. But, like, what have you learned about that? Yeah, if we decouple the word story from storyteller, I think everyone can understand and apply story. Because what I've done is, as a pattern finder, I've found all these patterns that anyone can apply. So we see the geekiest technical person, the geekiest data analyst, all of them, they're like, oh, my gosh, this is unlocking a ways and structures to communicate. So that's story. If you say storytelling, like being a storyteller, meaning like tell stories verbally and stand up in front of people naturally, um, I do think there are people who are more comfortable in front of an audience and some people are less comfortable in front of an audience. What I've found, though, is the more introverted, thoughtful, more scared communicators, they do a better job in preparing their content. And whereas other people, they'll just get up and be like, I'm really good at this. I don't have to prepare as much as that guy. I'm just going to wing it. And I think I'd rather hear from a nervous, thoughtful communicator than a charismatic, empty communicator. 
communicator, right? So I do think people are just a little less scared to go on stage. Um, even I get nervous, depending on who's in the audience, right? So I, I, I do. I sometimes I feel like that's this is just too high stakes, and I'll even get nervous, and I do this all the time. So I think when you're a little more nervous, um, there's proof that says you have a different level of chemicals going through your system. You do a little better, and so I think people just have to embrace their um, their way of communicating. And if you're naturally comfortable, work a little harder on your content because you might be skipping some steps. If you're really thorough on your content, then hire a coach. And how do you get somebody over their nervousness if they're just a nervous presenter or they don't like yeah, to present in front of a big question. audience? So we have we have actually IP around that we haven't really released yet because it's it's about being comfortable, um, dynamic, and empathetic. Those are the three things that help you become uh, a really good presenter. But but dynamism and being comfortable and being empathetic are for not if you don't communicate from a keen sense of purpose. So you have all these exercises to find your purpose and your meaning and communicate from there. Um, so when you strip and you ask an entrepreneur a whole bunch of questions and you get to the root for why they're doing it and teach them communicate from that place, the nerves start to fall away. And then all we have to work on is their dynamism, how comfortable they are on the stage and how empathetic they are with their phys the physical way they deliver it. Um, so there's exercises to do. What's fascinating to me is I did a bunch of research. Um, I asked a bunch of public speakers about how do they prepare so they're re stage ready. Um, a lot of them were like, oh, I listen to heavy metal and, and I bang my head against the mattress in my hotel room before. I, I mean, it was just crazy. It, half of them were like that. And the other half were I, I calm myself down and I do yoga breathing and I, you know, so it's like really wow. a spectrum, but it was almost half and half. So I think you got to know yourself and what gets you over nervousness because what's happening is your fight or flight instinct is kicking in and you got to change the chemistry in your body somehow to not be scared anymore. And some people do that by calming themselves down and some people do that by firing themselves so up. So if you have rocky energy, yeah. you, you listen to the heavy metal and if you have uh, Dalai Lama energy, you meditate. Well, I felt bad because I calm myself down, right? Because I already am over the top energetic, so I always have to be calm. So after I did this study, I, I thought, oh, what's going to happen if I do the rocky thing? I literally was backstage, <laughs> had my arms in the air and was fist pumping just before I, I went on stage. <laughs> <laughs> and I was breathing so heavy, the client, when it was done, asked me if I was sick. Yeah, so I was like, yeah, clearly I need to calm myself down and not pump myself that didn't up. Work and for everyone's you. different. Yeah, it had the, it had, it ruined, I thought it, it, it didn't ruin the talk, but I, yeah. I definitely came it across wasn't your best. panting. I guess huh. I was panting. <laughs> and so a lot of, a lot of the founders that we work with are interested in what, what types of books can they read? To, to quickly get down the learning curve on topics. So what are the, what are the some of the books that you think could help people in that zero to one phase? Yeah, if, if they really are fascinated by story and story structures, I always recommend what's called The Writer's Journey by Chris Vogler. He was a Disney analyst. He analyzed all the Disney stories um, to um, The Hero's Journey, which is fascinating. That helps you get your head around archetypes and story. And, and you're for, probably familiar with what Brian Chesky did at Airbnb, right? Yes. He, he actually hired some of those people yeah. to help him yeah, figure Yeah, he did out. storyboard. Like he, they actually created storyboards of the customer experience and yeah. they had a Pixar storyboarder do it and they found a flaw in their customer experience by storyboarding a day in the life of their hero of their protagonist huh. right and that was how that came about they they storyboarded a picture of their customers in all these different scenes and they figured out that we they need re they reprioritize their mobile strategy based on that storyboarding exercise it's fascinating yeah, yeah. There, there you know there's a set of people out there trying to defeat impossible 
and going to make a run at it, what's what's the single piece of advice that you'd give them? Like, what's the thing that you'd want them to come away from understanding about storytelling or just your advice to them in general as, a, as an entrepreneur as well? As an entrepreneur, I think the most critical thing we can have is empathy. And there's just a huge void of it. And so in your quest to get uh, more empathetic toward your customers, toward your employees, story is the way to get there um, and the frameworks of story. So everything in our body of work and at, at the company is completely always empathy first, empathy first. And I think the other skill that's critical for entrepreneurs to have is a, is a highly developed intuitive sense. I call it your ability to have a prophetic imagination. And so many technical founders specifically are so analytical that they forget that really being an entrepreneur is almost equally as much intuition and just knowing. So in in understanding and, and being very close to people who worked directly with Steve Jobs, they would prepare massive amounts of information for him and, and every time we walked in the room, he would make a counterintuitive decision than anyone else planned. And those kinds of things come from the gut. And the best decisions I made in my own entrepreneur journey were the data would have said to do something different. And so you just really got to suspend your belief sometimes and uh, embrace other intuitive ways of working um, to really be at the right place in the future. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because I find that this can be challenging for some because some people are – very technically strong, but part of their ethos and part of their self-identity is about their pride and accuracy and pride and being able to be logical and explaining things. And it's kind of counterintuitive, but you have to get out of your comfort zone a little bit because if, if storytelling is the primitive that's going to cause people to join your movement, you have to embrace that and you have to be willing to kind of put yourself out there and not just not be too linear, not be too too technical in the sense of being like a technician. What's interesting about that is one of the studies that was done in stories say that stories actually transport you and they will make it so you suspend that critical and analytical nature and can believe things that an alternate future, right, is what entrepreneurs want to do anyway. And so using story in that sense to free you from your detail-oriented, perfectly organized way um, would be very wise. Cool. Well, thanks for taking the time, Nancy. It was thanks great to talk to you. Me. It was so fun. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Starting Greatness. You can follow me on Twitter at M2JR, and please shoot me an email with any comments or questions to greatness at floodgate.com. I hope you'll subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, I'd be grateful if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Never let go of your inner power to do great things in whatever matters to you. And until we meet again, remember, greatness is a decision.